Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. New VanCast, a couple of days into NHL free agency after bidding farewell to all of their own UFAs. The Canucks land Nate Schmidt from Vegas during the dinner hour on Monday night. Lots of twists and turns to get to that point, Drancer, with many wondering what exactly the Canucks were up to, if they were up to anything at all. So lots to talk about, but <laughs> before we get to any but before we get to any of that, I gotta tell you, you provided me with one of my best laughs over this long weekend. Yes, good. I'm glad to hear it. And you just provided me with one of the best laughs I've had in a long time too. The <laughs> if they're up to anything at all. Just so perfect. Uh tremendous work. Hey. Take a bow, sir. <laughs> oh. The last time we recorded, you sort of signed off after your first full year with The Athletic, right? The last podcast mm-hmm. last week. And I think the numbers were something, correct me if I'm wrong, they were like 100 games, 1,000 podcasts, and a million written words or <laughs> Five, something in that 500K plus words, yeah. <laughs> Ridiculous. Okay. Well, so you said you needed to take the weekend to decompress and that you were going to go up into the mountains above Pemberton and you were going to reconnect with your family and it all sounded amazing. And then I wake up Sunday morning, and one of the first things I see when I check my phone is Drancer weighing in on the value the Detroit Red Wings got with the Loki signing of Vladislav Nemesnikov. <laughs> that is not, that's not being off the grid. Hey, Vladislav Nemesnikov is a solid <laughs> middle six winger, man. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Look, I mean, you still check Twitter. Like, it's not like I was somewhere where I didn't have any, um, you know, uh, access to the 3g network like i still had some access now i didn't have wi-fi uh i didn't write a word uh but i did tweet some things and you know there's just too much happening right like there's too much happening i'm too interested in it i had to opine a little bit as some of my favorite low-key you know good value buys went off the board among them jesper fast vladislav nemesnikov and lucas walmark i think i think a team could have built like a pretty good third line for under five million aav right there uh just with those three players like that would have been a really good that forget pretty good i think that's a really good third line that could have been constructed at, uh, for five million um against the cap in this market uh, tremendous like just a wild wild weekend for the sport an unprecedented buyer's market and really one that shines a light on why you know committing dollars to depth pieces uh sort of comes back to haunt you right like for the cost of louis erickson you can ice an above average nhl third line in this market and, and i think that's sort of what added to the frustration the canucks fans felt as the week went along yeah, and frustration is a great word, and and for some it was more than that. The, just sort of the inactivity, yeah, carnage. People wondering if if 
the league was just going to pass the Canucks by here. Uh, Markstrom out the door, Tanev out the door, Stetcher out the door. And then, you know, people woke up Monday morning thinking, okay, something's got to give here. The Canucks have to get in on all of this. They've got to find a defenseman. And then Tyler Toffoli comes off the board at a very manageable price point. Oh, That's a nice signing for great Montreal Canadiens. And, and again, I think that the frustration from the Canuck fan base was Brandon Sutter will make more this season than Tyler Toffoli will playing for the right. Montreal Canadiens. Like, that's just the harsh reality of where we are in all of this. And so then it was like, and now Toffoli's gone too. Like, what's going on? And it was the knives route for Jim Benning, the knives route for Francesco Aquilini. Uh, people wanted to burn the franchise to the ground. And fortunately, some sanity prevailed. And in the dinner hour, the Canucks land Nate Schmidt. So... I don't know where you want to start in all of this, if we want to start with Schmidt or if we want to go back since we last recorded, because when we were recorded, Markstrom was gone, Holpe was here, and everything else was still up in the air at that point, right? right. And I think that I think that, we should start there because the last we heard from Jim Benning was, you know, and it was my question, right? I was like, Are you planning to do some value shopping, right? Like what's your what's your sort of outlook here for the rest of the weekend? And his answer was my focus is on re signing our guys. And that didn't happen, right? Like, to a, to a T, the dominoes fell. And I think the Tanev deal, people could understand, right? Like, on Friday, when the Canucks had Markstrom and Tanev walk to Calgary. Uh, walk. Take the long walk over the Rocky Mountains to Calgary. <laughs> um, I think people understood, right? Like, I think those deals were the types of day one UFA deals where people are like, ooh, that term, you know? I saw a joke. I, I can't remember who said it on Twitter, but someone was like, man, that Tanev deal could be ugly on the back end. And and the joke was, well, it could be ugly on the front end, right? Like, and, and look, Chris Tanev, excellent defensive defender. You know, the one thing I, I do think you got to come back to is for all that we've heard about paying for leadership, right? You know, over the years in Vancouver, like there's one guy here in that locker room who everyone called dad, like the best young players called dad. And if you're going to overpay for leadership, like, isn't that the guy and the fact that you're overpaying for leaders elsewhere and then you lose the dad, like, doesn't that repudiate the whole frickin' operation in terms of why that argument's always been stupid? Anyway, just wanted to quickly throw that in there and move on to by the time you get to Stetcher and by the time you get to Toffoli, like, those are deals any team, 31 teams should be gobbling, jumping at the opportunity to have Toffoli at, what, 4.25 and, and Stetcher at 1.7. And, you know, I think Stetcher's defensive contributions are vastly, vastly underrated by people in this market. They're not underrated, by the way, around the NHL, I don't think. I mean, they are a little bit in that the market wasn't there for him to get more than 1.7 times two. But, you know, like, there are smart talent evaluators who rates Stetcher's defensive game ahead of, for example, Mackenzie Weger, who is, of course, at the very top of Canucks fans' wish cast list. And then, obviously, the Toffoli thing. And, I mean, considering the price they paid for him and considering the reasonable term that he ends up coming in at, um, considering that the Canucks are probably looking at an alignment with Jake Vertanen in their top line, you know, pretty pretty hard to stomach the fact that, realistically, because you qualify Jake... He's only going to cost about a million point two five less than Toffoli in all likelihood and is so much better, just so much better as a player and play driver and defensive piece. I mean, that's a that's a really tough one to look at and think that the Canucks have sort of nailed this. And then 
you get to Nate Schmidt. So, I, you know, I think the as those dominoes fell, I just think it felt like, you know, the chickens coming home to roost at long last for the sins of July 1 past as the Canucks lost out, yes, on two, like, beloved guys who've totaled 16 years here in Tanev and Markstrom, even though those contracts were to the point where, you know, I don't think there was a ton of criticism just because people in this market are aware of you know, the risks of going long on players, right? Like they've seen how this played out with Brandon Sutter, Chris Higgins, Alex Burrows over the years, right? And so I don't think there was a ton of outcry over those. By the time you get to Stetcher 1.7, it's like that makes sense for everybody in the league. And 4.4, uh, 4.25 for Toffoli times four. What a steal for just a really, really good, really smart, excellent two-way winger. Uh, that can play at the very top of your lineup and contribute. I, I mean, I think Montreal got a steal there and, and a player who could look really good on a line with Nick Suzuki if that's where he plays next season. You know, Stetcher, it's sort of been said repeatedly in this market how much people liked him, you know, guys in the media respected him. Uh, it's a loss, there's no doubt. And we were led to believe that he had a bunch of options, you know, like he picked an NHL team. He's playing in the NHL. He gets to continue his dream. I just I don't know how much we're going to get to see his defensive acumen in Detroit on that team uh, with the holes elsewhere in that roster. So I don't know ultimately what his other options were, but he'll get a chance to play and probably play a fair bit play a in Detroit. And if oh it, yeah, you know if it's about opportunity, then good for him. But man, the Detroit Red Wings uh, when you think of where they were last year, uh, and and he'll help. But I, I think you know they need help at every position times a thousand so yeah you know i hope it works out for him there well, but uh i wonder if the two years too right because they're not only going to need defenders to expose that meet their requirements they might need guys to protect <laughs> right so i, I yep. mean he, you get the second year because that's a team that's probably looking at a ton of weird expansion issues that no one else is just because they don't have you know they probably don't have seven plus three plus one nhl caliber players to protect in the first place and you know, I mean, at the 1.7 price point, if Detroit retains on the last year of the deal, for example, like Stetcher at, you know, 850K becomes like a really nice depth ad for a buyer at the deadline and on and on. I mean, everything Detroit did look designed not just to sort of get NHL players in the lineup this year, but to navigate expansion in a smart way and then potentially to sell those pieces off for further assets as the Iserman plan sort of grinds into gear. Yeah, and he'll get the chance to play with Vladislav Nemesnikov, so there's oh, an man. added bonus. Two two really good <laughs> undervalued players, let me tell you, J-Pat. So you weren't... I'm serious. I like no, both players I'm, a lot. I'm, <laughs> I'm not... It's just, look, this isn't the... Red Wings cast. This is the the man cast. So we got to focus, focus here. But right, you sorry. talked about you talked about being up in the Pemberton Valley and and not constantly on your phone. How much of sort of the vitriol did you consume yesterday ahead not of much. the Nate Schmidt? So you're not much, lucky but, one. But my you're phone was blown up. My phone was blown up. Like the thing is, is I didn't have to seek it out. I had like my high school friends player agents, like other management, like people were getting at me to blast the Canucks, right? Like it, it was, it chased me. It was active. So, I, I mean, I think I can infer from that 
what it was like uh, to doom scroll Twitter uh, on Monday as the day unfolded and the Canucks missed out on the Toffoli value buy. Well, and and I think you know this is important because we all talk to people in the league and around the league, and and your phone is ringing, and mine was yesterday too. Some some people that you know I respect in the league that were asking me like, what is going on in Vancouver, right? Like there were right. people in the league. What is the plan? Yeah. That up until the dinner hour on Monday, like they were wondering from outside, like you know, is the front office taking this holiday Monday off entirely? Like, is anybody there working in the corner office at at Rogers Arena? Because for a long while, it did kind of feel like just all of these moves were passing the Canucks by. Now, clearly, there were things happening behind the scenes, and sometimes you you do have to wait. And this was, the, the Schmidt deal ultimately was one that required some other dominoes to fall. You know, I don't think it fell into the Canucks' lap. I think everybody realized that Petrangelo had flown in on the private jet over the weekend and was doing the meet and greet with Vegas and that all these dots were connecting and that this was certainly a possibility that if Petrangelo ended up in Vegas, then the Golden Knights, and they had this long list of players who probably were on pins and needles for a good part of the weekend, right? Like it wasn't just Nate Schmidt. There were a lot of guys we know that, uh, and now we found out about uh, the injury to Lanner, but you know, for a long while, people wondered what they were going to do with their goaltending and Marc-Andre Fleury and all that kind of stuff. So... You know, do you have any sense of the timing in all of this as far as, you know, again, it looked from the outside like there wasn't much going on with the Canucks, but clearly there had to have been some back and forth with Vegas as much as, you know, hey, if you get Petrangelo, we're over here and we're willing to play if you're looking to move a defenseman. Yeah, there had to have been. And and I do get the sense in just exchanging some texts and I'll I'll go deeper and report this out over the course of the week because I really want to understand what unfolded this past weekend right like I, I still don't feel like I have a I feel like I have a really good grasp up until Thursday's deadline for buyouts and then the Canucks don't put a player on on don't exercise a buyout on a player in the first buyout window and from there through the Schmidt tr- trade I feel like I have no sense of what really happened, right? Like I, I just it, the public comments from Jim Benning, from the Canucks organization, even even what I've been told privately doesn't match what we saw unfold. Really, I, I mean, I guess you could say that the consistent thread is that they were really after a game-changing top four defender, right? Like Oliver Ekman Larson soaked up all their attention, and then they sort of moved their attention, and clearly the likes of Stetcher and Toffoli were sort of back of the bus items relative to, you know, finding a guy like Nate Schmidt, like a top of the lineup caliber defender. I mean, I mean, I guess that's the common thread, but I, I know it's more complicated than that. And, and I plan to, to run that down. But the thing that I do think is I think the Canucks were pretty confident that Pietrangelo was going to Vegas and that there was going to be an opportunity there. And I, I suspect that that was at least a 24 hour, probably a little bit longer sort of process from a Canucks from the Canucks end. Like I think they had a pretty good idea that they were going to have this ad um, at least a day out and and maybe a little bit more than that. So, you know, that's an interesting sort of wrinkle here in in that Monday unfolds with them taking all those shots publicly and they're sort of just waiting for the domino to fall that that benefits them and ultimately they end up getting a really interesting player, like a really good player. Uh, just a tremendous tremendous piece for a third round pick, which in a vacuum is, you know, there's no arguing with that spot of business. 
No, I, I, I like the player. I like the acquisition cost. I, I guess the irony for me is that Nate Schmidt becomes available because the division rival and the team that eliminated you from the playoffs has gone out and acquired what they think is a better piece, right? And the big fish in free agency. So the Canucks benefit from the trickle down there. And Vegas is in the division, although that may not matter because if it ends up being an all-Canadian division, it may be a while before the Canucks are back in what we know as the Pacific. (laughs) So, you know, there's a ton there. That's for another day. Uh, But the bottom (laughs) bottom line is they... They get a guy who is essentially two full years younger than Chris Tanev. So Mm -hmm. they gain in that respect. Uh, We know Tanev and what he meant to the Canucks and what he did for the Canucks. Uh, Nate Schmidt is a different type of player. I mean, when I think of Nate Schmidt, I just think of a guy who is all over the ice in a good way. Like his skating is at that elite level. And, you know, in my limited dealings with him, but listening to Jesse Granger was on the radio this morning, covers the, the Golden Knights. Uh, for the Athletic in Vegas, like everybody just raves about the person. Like this guy is one of the <laughs> great characters, not a guy with character. He's one of the great characters in the National Hockey League these days. Yeah, and so his sound effect, he was like one of the Vegas sound effects guys. And, and you know, I, I, I mean, people are like, was he one of the rude guys being mean? It's like, <laughs> I don't know. Like, I don't know, right? I, I If I knew, I would have passed it along. That When I knew who had said something, I passed that along. If I wasn't certain, I didn't. And I don't know, but here's what I can tell you Nate Schmidt does. Nate Nate Schmidt is all over the ice, right? Like he is a play-driving top pair defender, right? He led the Vegas Golden Knights in minutes in the playoffs uh, at five-on-five. Led them similarly in the regular season. Guy is super active. Like he is always taking fourth man's ice. He is activating on in-zone play off the cycle. Like he is always getting open, finding soft areas of the ice, always in attack mode tremendous skater and when he gets open in an empty arena he, he unleashes a battle cry and it's like whoop, whoop, and instead of calling out the name so he's not like you know uh he's not gonna be like uh bo 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 or like pd pd like he's gonna be like whoop 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 and he starts whooping like a fire <laughs> alarm when he's open on the rush it's tremendous it was honestly one of my favorite things about uh about watching vegas play uh, so that's my that's my bubble insight, my empty arena insight into watching Nate Schmidt play is that he plays like a fire alarm and, and lets people know that he's open by by whooping at them. Um, look, he's he's a really good piece. Like he's a really good player. He produces offense and he helps you tilt the ice against tough minutes. Uh, can play both the left and the right side and has been effective on both over the last few years. Um, you know that's that's excellent, right? Because this is a guy who helps you with your right side problem this year potentially. Potentially helps you build in a succession plan for Alex Edler. Uh, you know, if the Canucks are able to go out and find another right-sided defender, which is going to be really tough to do considering their cap issues, which I assume we'll get to later in the podcast. Um, you know, I mean, he can shift over to the left side, move Edler to the third pair. There's a ton of different ways that this team can use him. Contributes shorthanded, contributes on the power play. Like, this is a really good piece. But when you come back to the, you know, Schmidt for a third round deal, like, or a third round pick, like, wow, that's such a win. At the same time, you know, as you said, with Vegas, right? If Vegas had traded Nate Schmidt plus a third for Alex Pietrangelo, right? Everyone would be saying home run, right? Like an unprecedented steal. Um, and that's basically kind of what's occurred here and what the Canucks helped facilitate in terms of, you know, one of the best teams in their conference. Um, 
throw in the fact that the Colorado Avalanche got better too, and you're sort of looking at a situation where even if you think the Nate Schmidt deal is a game changer for the Canucks, it's hard to argue that they've gained against the best teams in the West. Yeah, I think that's well put. And But the bottom line is they had to get better, and they are better with Nate Schmidt. Yes. In the here and now. But, but are but, they better with Nate Schmidt than they are with Toffoli, Markstrom, Tanev, and Stetcher? Right. And, and you know, that's a discussion and a debate that will go on. And probably the answer's can't no. Be, but, but it can't be answered in the first... I guess in the here and now, I would agree with you. But, you know, we don't know what years five no, and six of Markstrom's deal or three and four of Tanev. And, you know, sure. those, were the, those were the risks, obviously, that the Canucks weren't prepared to take with those players. So they have gone... In this different direction. Now, Nate Schmidt on the right side is going to fly in the face of everything we know about Travis Green and Nolan Baumgartner to this point, other than a limited uh, run for Jordy Ben as a left-handed shot playing the the right side right. in in limited moments. But you know, I, I'm glad that you brought up like just because if he starts on the right side, he doesn't have to stay on the right side. And Alex Edler's not going to play forever. It just kind of feels that way. Um, and I don't think Edler's done after this year. Like I, I think Edler could sign. Uh, you know, a team-friendly one-year deal that keeps them in the league and still playing and those types of things. But, you know, then you know, push this a year down the road. I still think the Canucks, with this deal, like, they'll have to protect Schmidt, but they still have flexibility in and around Seattle expansion. Oh, and we've talked about that in the past where I still feel strongly like that's going to be another opportunity for them to pounce and pull off this kind of deal to acquire a defenseman that can play. No question, especially because you don't have to protect Tyler Myers. And I don't mean you don't have to protect Tyler Myers in terms of his NMC NTC, although that's true too. I mean, you don't have to protect him to keep him, right? Um, Edler is going to be a pending UFA. He completely controls his destiny. If they take him, you can just resign him anyway. Uh, you don't have to protect Hughes. Uh, you will have to protect Yolevi and I think Rafferty. Rafferty's on the line. I'm not exactly sure. I think you have to protect Rafferty if you want to keep him. So, I mean, look, the Canucks, fact of, fact of the matter is, is that unless they add another body here, there's not a defender that you're going to lose sleep about um, leaving unprotected, frankly. So... Uh, I, I I mean, yeah, they're going to be well-positioned to to look at teams like, you know, even the New York Islanders post-Devin Taves trade are going to have a crunch. The Minnesota Wild, we all know. Uh, Nashville Predators, on and on down the line. There's a lot of teams with a lot of talent on the blue line that are going to have protection issues. You're right, that that is going to be an opportunity in the future, uh, especially as the Canucks' books begin to look a little bit better here in the next year or two, of course, the impact of that will be neutered by Quinn Hughes, Elias Pettersson becoming significantly more expensive, and not to mention what could happen in the event that Thatcher Demko continues to build off of his rookie season and maybe breaks out this year. Um, he'll be a pending, unrestri- pending restricted free agent too. He's not going to necessarily be you know, a, a value buy for very long for this club either. What's your sense as we sit here about... Uh, this top four and how it unfolds. Like, do you see Schmidt as a partner for Quinn Hughes? Two remarkably mobile guys. Like, I was just looking at it. Sounds fun. Before we, before we, you know, before we hit the air, there were only four defensive pairs in the entire NHL that played more together than Nate Schmidt and Braden McNabb. Like, he, uh, he was basically right. stapled Glued to Braden to McNabb. And the uh, of those four that played more, um, the only pair that had better underlying numbers 
were Ryan Suter and Jared Spurgeon in Minnesota. So that was a pair that played a ton, played a lot, played well for the Vegas Golden Knights. And so he's sort of a creature of habit. He's got, you know, he's a guy that's been fixed to one defenseman. Do you see Hughes and Schmidt and then Edler Myers? Or are we looking? Because Tyler Myers is not a top-pairing defenseman. We know that about him. They can't use him and Hughes together in big minutes in all situations. I think I think we're going to see a lot of Hughes Myers. Like I think you we're going to see a lot of Hughes Myers. Yeah, because think about it's not just McNabb over the last two years. Really, it's one and a half seasons in which Schmidt and McNabb have been stapled together to the point that if one of them fell out of a tree, the other one would too. Um, literally because of the staples, uh, but also because you know if you go back further right schmidt Derek england was a thing schmidt lucas spisa was a thing right like schmidt is a guy who vegas has tended to put over multiple coaches with a less mobile defender who does the stay at home thing right like schmidt has been schmidt is similar in skill set he's not similar because he plays the game completely differently. Like Schmidt is up tempo where Hughes slows everything down. Um, but Hughes and Schmidt have the same kind of impact, right? Like they're the same kind of play driving defender with some gaps in terms of their in zone defensive play, which is kind of why Schmidt's not the ideal Tanev replacement, by the way, right? So I think Schmidt Edler is a gimme personally, right? Like Edler's basically, you know, late career Edler's basically McNabb anyway, right? I mean, essentially, like a slower defender. He's, I mean, he's more skilled than McNabb by a lot, of course, but, you know, I, I he's basically become more of a defensive stopper with great vision and a big shot right. as opposed yep. to, you know, the, the defender that he was, the super dynamic two-way defender that he was earlier in his career. Uh, for me, that's a no-brainer. Like, Schmidt, Edler, and that's going to probably be your first-choice matchup pair and that opens up its own questions in terms of what's the best way to use Edler, right? I mean, I think there's some sort of, I think there's a lot of difficult questions there. And then the last thing is we do know that this Canucks coaching staff has no concerns about moving things around situationally in terms of, you know, how their pairs look. So could we see like Schmidt-Ben be kind of the pair that starts games and then Schmidt Edler becomes your defensive pair late if you're holding a lead. Like I, I could see something like that, uh, just as a just as an effort to sort of manage Edler's minutes a little bit better. But yeah, for me, Edler Schmidt makes the most sense in my mind's eye. And then Hughes and Myers becomes sort of your more offensively calibrated pair, right? Like that's not a pair that you're going to want playing matchup minutes clearly. And so you know that. I mean, I mean, it's again why I like Schmidt. I think there's no question. Like, people are like, is he a good fit? It's like it's always a good fit to add really good players, and Schmidt is a really good player. But is he the ideal Chris Tanev replacement considering this club's defensive issues? The answer is no. Right, which begs the question then. You know, do you think this is it? Like, I know they don't have much flexibility, and we can certainly get into the cap yeah. issues. I don't but- know what comes next, right? You know, they've been linked to other... I mean, Hamnick's name's been out there, and I know they kicked tires on Sammy Vatnin. And uh, I think last podcast, we talked about a guy like Jan Ruta, who played limited minutes, but played reasonably well in Tampa Bay. Like, those are all right-side guys that are still out there on the open market. You know, is there need for one more guy who has proven he can play at the NHL level 
But even if there is need, is there room? Is there cap flexibility? <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I don't think so. Not not without a domino falling in terms of Erickson, Sutter, Beagle, Roussel, Berchi, right? Like if you can clear space and you could find a value deal for a Hamannick or a Vatnin or, you know, pursue a trade for a Uyghur or, you know, something even bigger potentially. Uh, I mean, I think that would be hoove the Canucks to explore and I'm sure they will explore it. Uh, I mean, I think this is a team that still clearly needs an additional defender, uh, frankly, like an additional right side guy, um, especially because, you know, <laughs> I, I think if you could move Schmidt over to the left side and, and go with Edler on your third pair, uh, I think that helps open up a ton of options, um, especially as, if you are insistent on, you know, introducing a Rafferty or a, or a Chatfield, as, you know, Jim Benning likes to say, <laughs> um, onto your third pair. So, yeah, no, I mean, I think you got to keep, I think you got to keep building if you can, but I don't, I don't know how you do that. Like, I just don't know. There's, we're, we're at a point where, what, 90 plus percent of cap space around the NHL is committed, where a third pair defenseman goes for a third round pick because, they, you know, the teams are all capped out and there's not enough other places to send him for there to be a bidding war at all for his services. I mean, that to me suggests that, yeah, it's going to be really, really tough for the Canucks to make any additional moves. Frankly, it might be really, really tough just to get Vertanen and Gaudet and then flesh out the roster with two more bodies um, done within the, the club's current cap constraints. So... Uh, definitely we're, we're sort of reaching the end of the line in terms of what the Canucks can realistically do to improve their club unless they're committing, you know, uh, a significant future asset into trading out one of their players. And, and it's clear, it's clear, like it's so obvious from what the Canucks have done to this point that, in fact, they're not going to part, I don't think, with any significant futures, right? And, and I think that lines up with a lot of what we're seeing from the club's overall positioning, right? Like we have seen this club, I mean, Nate Schmidt comes at a big dollar value for this year, but to this point, we've seen this club be pretty resistant to adding salary specifically for the 2020-21 year. However, we haven't seen them shy away from making longer term commitments. And what that suggests to me is there is a business judgment, and, and I think a perfectly reasonable one, that you know, the while the market remains strong and over the long term, you know, it, it, clearly the Aquilini ownership group ha retains confidence in it. I think it's apparent that it, over the short term, they expect pain, right? They expect revenue pain. And, you know, the, the moves that they've made line up with that and also line up with the fact that the club's keeping their assets, right? Like is keeping their future assets, their firsts, um, Pod Colson, Hoglander, Rathbone, Lind, right? Like we, we know that the club was resistant to sep uh, to dealing a big future piece in a potential ekman larson deal they've obviously found a low lower cost acquisition in schmidt we can see that the club is clearly positioning themselves for a couple years down the line as opposed to now and with that reluctance in tow i just see very little flexibility to move off some of their bad money right like if they're not going to deplete their war chest then they're not going to be able to open up flexibility it's really that simple all right comprehensive look at the canucks here a few days into free agency on this van cast uh, we've talked a lot about uh, the defense and nate schmidt now he fits in 
Uh, some questions up front now that Tyler Toffoli has left the fold here. Uh, we'll get to that in a sec, but first, got to take a quick break. We'll be back with more of the VanCast right after this. All right, so the Vancouver Canucks still have to get Jake Furtanen's name on a deal. He's got arbitration rights. He's filed for arbitration. We know that. Adam Gaudet. 10-2-C, one of your favorite clauses yep. in the CBA. One of the Canucks' favorite clauses, because it will preclude <laughs> yeah. any teams from offersheeting Quinn Hughes next offseason, right? That, that, no, that, right? that actually yeah. is a big deal. Like, that is a big deal for a team that has not managed their books that well to this point, right? That will still have Louis Erickson on the books, <laughs> potentially, next offseason. Like, the fact that Quinn Hughes can't sign an offer sheet and only Elias Pettersson can offers some real protection to this franchise at the moment. So it's not just my favorite clause, Chapat. It's not just my favorite clause. It should be everyone's. <laughs> and I know like there are a fair number of people that seem to think like this is the year for pain and where Jim Benning's hands are constrained, right? Like the, the, the financial shackles. And yeah, they get out from under Brandon Sutter and Alex Edler's six mil comes off the books and all that kind of stuff. Uh, Pearson will be a UFA. Jordy Ben's deal is up. But, like, all of those contracts are going to be absorbed by Pedersen and Hughes. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah. Like, the, the, the pain is not done until no. Louis Erickson is jettisoned or liberated or whatever. Like, that really is the millstone. And until that deal comes off the books, there is still... So, I think we're going to be having a lot of these same discussions next off season, whenever that is, because I, I just feel like I've looked at the numbers here... And really, they line up just about right that all those guys that are UFAs, you just shuffle that money straight over to Pedersen and Hughes. Totally. Yeah, and, and that's one thing that hockey analysis and hockey itself, like as, as an entity, does poorly is accounts for opportunity cost, right? And in the last year of Hughes and Pedersen's ELCs facing an unprecedented buyer's market, albeit one that wasn't foreseeable, you know, the fact is, is that the opportunity cost of being as limited as the Canucks are, right, of being unable to explore a, a Jesper Fast or a, or a Nemesnikov type deal, uh, of being unable to do four times 4.25 for Toffoli, like the opportunity cost of being hamstrung in this buyer's market by, you know, almost 30 million committed to your bottom six, like it's astronomical. It might be unprecedented. Like it's unlike anything I've ever seen. And there's no shrugging and saying, well, look at Nate Schmidt. I mean, clearly they had the cap space to add. It's like they had the cap space to add some, but they should have had the cap space to add an awful lot more. Um, and, you know, locking up the money that they have locked up against the cap on marginal contributors, um, you know, considering how affordable two of their top two of the top 25 players in the NHL are right now on their books. It, it's not it's not excusable, man. Like it's really something that people should be looking at and shaking their heads because clearly the chicken, like it's, it's just not, it's just, it's far from optimal. It's catastrophic. And, you know, it will prevent the Canucks from opening what could have been sort of the first window for them to really contend uh, this upcoming season. Right, and I think you know that point is underscored and probably driven home even for Canucks management when they look around the league, and like this may not be you know the perfect third and fourth lines, but you know Nick Cousins and Brad Richardson in Nashville, two point five million combined for right. the third and fourth line centers. Yeah, right. Like 
Both are credible. I mean, Cousins was, I thought, pretty good for Vegas uh, in the playoff run. Brad Richardson still going. I mean, it's 35-plus now, but still, for the next year, the Nashville Predators are playing, paying their third and fourth line centers a grand total of $2.5 bucks. Like That's the flexibility you need to make other things happen elsewhere through your lineup and not having $6 million of Louis Erickson in the press box and $3 million of Jay Beagle uh, out there you know, trying to do Jay Beagle things. So, uh, you know, that's what we've seen here, particularly among the forward group, is that guys are signing deals sort of where they should be slotted on most depth charts. Yep. Right? Like, we've seen those kinds of contracts here in the first few days. I mean, there have been some exceptions, obviously. Taylor Hall got his money on his one-year deal, and, you know, there are other guys that have been able to, to sign some contracts with some money. But for the most part, we have seen a ton of sort of low risk, low money, uh, low in the lineup kinds of contracts where guys ultimately should be getting that kind of money. Right, and deals that the Canucks just don't have the flexibility to explore because they're going to be struggling just to lock up their RFAs at this point and then flesh out their roster with depth. And, you know, that... I mean, it's it's truly an unprecedented level of opportunity cost incurred, um, unlike anything we've ever seen just because of how good and how affordable Hughes and Pedersen are at this juncture of their careers. And, you know, I, I not only do I think it needs to be mentioned, like I think it should be focused on and obsessed over. I don't think we can talk about it too much because, again, I don't think I've ever seen anything like it. Um, and, and fair enough, because this is an unprecedented offseason, but also because of how good and how affordable Hughes and Pedersen are and how, you know, lacking, just lacking, the supporting cast around them is likely to be. I mean, you think about the fact that realistically, you know, with the alignment as it stands, there's no way you can play Vertanen with Horvat and Pearson durably. Right, because of the types of minutes that Horvat and Pearson tend to eat, right? So that means you have to break up the lotto line and probably play Jake Vertanen on your top line. And in a world where Toffoli was like the perfect complement for that line and only costs four point two five, and instead you're slotting Vertanen, who's you know, I know he would have probably got there, but never hit twenty goals, never hit forty points, remains a work in progress to put it tactfully. Uh, in his own end and and as a two-way piece i mean just just why just why like it's 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 hard to understand honestly it's it's really hard to wrap your head around yeah and and you're probably not the only one asking that question there's probably a a young swedish center that's (laughs) wondering a little bit no honestly like you know you're right we saw we saw what that lotto line could do whether it was to foley or whether it was besser you know, the underlying numbers prove like elite, right? Among the league's best in terms of play driving and scoring chances and all those types of things. And if you're Brock Besser, you see Toffoli gone, you're probably thinking like, okay, maybe I come out of this thing ahead, but I hear you uh, when you look at Horvat. And it's incredible that here we are again, wondering, you know, who's going to play with, <laughs> with Horvat. Horvat. It's just like, <laughs> it's the evergreen question, man. Yeah. Like it just, it it's there every single year uh, and it's got like I, I'd love to be able to tap into a guy like Horvat over these last seventy-two hours. Like I wonder what he's thinking as he's watching all these guys that have gone to battle with him. You know, go out the door. I'm sure he's excited to get Nate Schmidt, but for a while there, like I wonder what the players were thinking as things looked like they were sort of slipping away from the Vancouver Canucks in free agency. Yeah, I'm. I'm. I don't think it's a stretch to imagine that there's a lot of you know unhappy people internally, right? Like I don't think there's any. 
I, I don't. I, I think the Nate Schmidt acquisition helps, but it's not getting you back to square one, even right. Um, no one's made their feelings secret in terms of, you know, how they regarded Markstrom, how they regarded Tanev, uh, especially, but Stetcher too, and and Toffoli as well. I, I mean, you know, and the last sort of part of it is, while you can understand with Markstrom and Tanev really getting paid, right? I mean, the other the other side of it is it does sound like Stetcher had a pretty similar option in Vancouver and, and spurned it, right? Um, it does sound like, uh, you know, Toffoli was really sort of on the outside looking in and with what we know about Schmidt coming later on in the day, that makes sense. But it's hard not to look at this and think, you know, yeah, they're, all these guys got paid, but I mean, would they have bought in if things had been articulated to them differently in terms of what the plan looks like. Um, I mean, I think it's hard not to imagine that, especially considering how we've seen teams like Tampa Bay build with some of their best players taking less to stay there. Yeah, you mentioned Tampa Bay, and I think it's safe to say that uh, the VanCast plan of the offer sheet for Eric Chernak is probably out the window now. Well, except that they kept their 2021 picks. Did you not notice that? The moment they traded a 2022 second, I thought, oh, well, they still have they still have um, offer sheet flexibility. <laughs> okay. That was the first thing All I right. thought. That was my first takeaway. I was like, oh, they still they still have the offer sheet weapon. Um, but look, you have to clear the books to make that deal. Like you have to you have to clear the books to even sort of you know explore that potential outcome. And honestly, I, I kind of do think offer sheets make more sense later. Right, like you don't necessarily want to do an offer sheet now when a team has a week um, with lots of cap space available and lots of different options. Like, really, what you want to do is make an offer sheet in the last week before waivers kick in, where everyone's scrambling and every all of the money is committed and and on and on. Like, you want to. That's really your time to go. But the Canucks have kept their picks to do it, and I don't think there's any philosophical sort of like that classic good old boys, whatever. I don't think there's any resistance like that internally in, in terms of exploring that route. I, I don't expect it, but I don't think that it's something that they wouldn't consider if it made sense. So um, we'll see, but they do still have that flex available having traded a 2022 third round pick for Nate Schmidt. Yesterday was a day for doomsdayers uh, up until the Canucks pulled off the Schmidt deal. I, I think, you know, if you're looking for positives, and maybe this is scratching for silver linings and those types of things, but, I mean, ultimately, the core group that performed so well in the playoffs is still intact. Like, Toffoli got hurt in Game 1 against Minnesota, didn't play a game in the St. Louis series, right? right. Like, so in the two series wins, Tyler Toffoli, through no fault of his own, he was hurt, but he wasn't a part of that. And we saw it. It was the coming out party for both Pedersen and Hughes. Answered every question anybody had about these guys playing sure. NHL playoff hockey. Horvat had his moments. Miller was good. Besser, uh, you know, quietly good. Like the, so, the Markstrom, core that though. carried Markstrom. this team in the playoffs. Markstrom. And, okay, Markstrom. You're right. Okay, that's the only. That's the only. That's the only one that you um, that you lose in terms of a real core piece. But like, let's make no mistake. Markstrom was a real core piece for this team. And, oh, a thousand percent. Yeah, yeah. And and look, that was a loss that they were well positioned to manage versus the loss of Tanev, right? Just because of what they had internally in Demko. And, you know, it was the defense core where they were, you know, far, far less well positioned. They brought in Schmidt, but 
you know, I mean, look, I, I, get, I take your point. You're right. The core group is still here, and they've added a top four defenseman. They've lost Markstrom, but they do have a, an able replacement in-house. Um, I think that's it's fair to say that the sky's not exactly falling here. It's just that... No, my point, though, my point was going to be that I'm sure that core group was like, all right, we've shown you what we could do here in playoff hockey. Now, management, get out there and get us some support, right? Because the issues in the playoffs, the issue in the bubbles, where's the secondary scoring? I mean, we asked that question throughout the St. Louis series, asked it again in the Vegas series, and it really never showed up in in the Vegas series. And so secondary scoring, shot giving up way too many shots and and scoring chances and so you know the bottom six is pretty much still the bottom six schmidt replaces tanev but there are still gaps and questions on that back end so if i'm that core group you know and and the core group is certainly something for fans to get excited about but if i am a member of that core group i'm kind of looking and thinking i'm not sure that really there's been a whole lot done here to support the guys that did the ultimate heavy lifting through a couple of rounds of the playoffs 100 percent 100 percent uh, yes, correct. And, you know, considering the, if I'm also on that core group, I'm looking around and being like, all of us are going to make a lot more soon, right? Like Hughes and Pedersen yeah. next season, Besser the year after that, Horvat the year after that, right? Like we're all going to end up making two to three million more at least. And in the case of Pedersen and Hughes, like 10x our current value. And if we don't have a supporting cast now, when will we, right? Like that would be the question that I'd have personally. Uh, I, I'm sure they don't think about it that way. I'm sure they just think about it as like Tanev was our guy. We liked going to war with him. Where is he? You know, like I'm sure that's more sort of how they look at it um, as opposed to <laughs> the, well, the opportunity cost way that I do. But the fact of the matter <laughs> is, the fact of the matter is, is that, you know, at some point, right? At some point around Pedersen and Hughes, like this market deserves a supporting cast capable of properly contending around two truly elite pieces, right? You give management credit for mining those guys out of the draft, right? The, the, the pain that this organization went through over the last five years has paid off with two of the most exciting players in franchise history, guys who have a chance to have their banners raised at some point if they continue on the trajectory they've been on, you know, as... 20 and 21 year old players respectively but around them you know this market deserves a team capable of supporting those guys and 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 you know getting to the point where you allow their talent to make the difference in key games as opposed to you know having to change the way you play fundamentally every opponent you face like the Canucks could play like they wanted to play against Minnesota against St. Louis they had to play this sort of more direct counterattacking style. They kind of went back to what worked for them on that win streak, right? Where they were just a counterattacking team. And then they did that to an extreme degree against the Vegas Golden Knights. And that's what they needed to do just to survive. And it worked. Like, they they managed to force a seventh game, but they needed a pretty historic goaltending performance from Thatcher Demko to get there. Uh, ultimately, that's not how you're going to win a cup, right? Like, you're going to win a cup by dictating play. The Nate Schmidt acquisition helps a little bit, right? Like the Nate Schmidt acquisition gives you another really credible top four defender. Long term, that's what this club needs and probably needs more than Toffoli at good value, even though Toffoli at good value would have been a tremendous ad for this team. And so, you know, I I think that's sort of my silver lining is big picture. What have the Canucks lost and what have the Canucks gained? 
And and the main thing the Canucks gained is another really good top four defender, which they're going to need. Like they're going to need one more for sure, but they're you know on their way now on that front. And the problem is, is that they've taken a step back up front and they've taken a step back on goal. And some total, I just don't see how anyone can reasonably say that this young team on the rise has continued on that trajectory based on how the first four or five days of free agency have unfolded. Right. And Nate Schmidt came to the Canucks as a tidy package. Like he's under contract. So this was a trade. There was no negotiation with Schmidt himself, right? The deal's there. It's done. But when you look at the first four days of free agency... I don't think you can say it was a masterclass for a lot of the reasons we talked about earlier on the podcast in negotiations with players and their agents. So maybe we finish with this. It's sort of a 30,000 foot question, but given that the two richest contracts in franchise history are coming down the pipe within the next 12 months, is there any reason to be concerned given the track record of July 1st gone by and these past few days that Jim Benning and John Weisbrod are going to be able to skillfully and successfully negotiate what are going to be massive, massive deals for Pedersen and Hughes. It's a big question. Like, it's a big question, straight up. I think the... I, I think the fact of the matter is is that those are going to be extraordinarily tough to figure out. And And one other sort of takeaway here is... You know, you're not getting hometown discounts on those, right? Like, you kind of, no. you kind of, no. you lose, you lose Markstrom, you lose Tanev. Like, you, there's no hometown discounts coming down the pike here. Um, they're going to be really tough. I, I do think there's going to be some opportunity to bridge Hughes because of his 10.2 C status. Uh, we saw the Charlie McAvoy is sort of the big comp that's going to stand out there because he got bridged and he was 10.2 C status for the Bruins. So that's the comp that's going to stand out for me. Um, That ended up being what, three years times five, basically. So, you know, there's going to be some more wiggle on Hughes, but on Pedersen, a guy who's been a point per game player, um, you know, really has a chance to be the only point per game ELC signed in the bloated second contract forward era other than Connor McDavid, uh, by the time he inks, I mean, that's going to be a mammoth, mammoth contract. I don't think they've gone too far down the road yet. Um, considering how resistant the club has seemed to be to outlay money uh, for this sort of season, I, I wonder if that's going to be kicked further down the road and maybe into next offseason. Certainly, certainly feels like that to me. Um, so we'll see, but yeah, those are going to be really, really tricky to do really, really crucial. And I, I do think, I do think it's fair to point out that, you know, for a variety of reasons, um, you know, front office confidence at the moment in this market is on the wane a little bit, especially considering we're only a month removed from a dream season concluding with, you know, two playoff round wins, uh, it's going to be really tricky. Yeah, and and I just I think it's it's contract negotiation that really has kind of been the sticking point with this group. I think you know draft we've talked about drafting. You know I think there's been some real improvement in the aggression they've shown in trades. And I know the Toffoli thing turns out to be a swing and a miss, but at the same time in that moment, I, I thought it was a fairly aggressive 
move. You know, Jim Benning hadn't been in a position to make that kind of trade, right? They'd yeah. never been pushing for a playoff spot. They they weren't thinking long-term about a playoff run. And, and so he stepped to the plate and made that deal. It didn't work out for them. But, you know, when you look at JT Miller, even go back to Pearson, you know, getting out from under Goodranson's contract and all. Like I think there's been a recent run of some decent trade activity. Agreed. So trades and drafts, it's still, it comes back to contracts and negotiations and free agency and, and those types of things. And, and that's why I pose that question that, like, these are contracts unlike anything that this organization, this ownership group has had to sign off on, all those types of things. And they're going to be doing it sort of at the back end of a global pandemic, too. So, you yes. know, just factor all of that in as well. No, you're, you know what? It's a really good point. And, and the Toffoli thing, you know, like the Canucks, first of all, saved a fourth round pick by not resigning to Foley, right? Because they owed they owed LA an additional fourth in the event that they'd extended right. to Foley. Uh, something I think you would have been happy to pay for. But look, you make a you make a win now trade with where they were on the heels of that Brock Besser injury, and you end up you know seven minutes away from the conference final. Like for me, that's always that's never going to be you know, the Sammy Paulson deal, right? Like that's never going to be remembered as uh, the Eric Weinrich trade. Like that's always going to be a trade that when we rank deadline, you know, deadline day or deadline day adjacent deals in the future, we'll say, well, they won two playoff rounds. I mean, that's, you know, they made the playoffs. They won a round, uh, basically. Um, That's, that's always good business for me. That's the point of buying at the deadline. Teams should be more aggressive in going after it when they have a real window. and, And I think the Canucks, had a real window at least to, to push some chips in considering how affordable Hughes and Pedersen were. And the fact that, you know, a, a big part of the big reason they made that deal was that Markstrom was at the absolute peak of his powers and was expiring, right? Like that was a big part of the deal. They were like, when will we go into the playoffs again with a starter we think gives us, you know, an atomic advantage over all of our opponents um, that proved to be prophetic, right? So, I mean, for me, the Toffoli deal was expensive. May prove, may people may look back on it and you know sort of <laughs> uh, rub their hands about losing out on Blomqvist, uh, the goaltender in the second round that they surely would have taken, and um, and Tyler Madden. We'll we'll sort of see how those careers go, but I, I do think that that deal is not one that I'm going to criticize the club for. But I think you've nailed it. Like the task for this organization is not so different from the one that the 2010-11 Canucks had to go through from 08 until they made the cup final and took it to game seven, which is that at the very same time that your core is about to get way more expensive. And and this is what people forget and ignored, frankly, in being like, well, Burke and Nona's assembled that core, right? It's like, yeah, but in between 08 and 2010, the, the, the previous regime had to sign all of Kessler, Luongo, and both Sedin twins, all of them at the same time to deals that paid them more. And they all came up. And at the same time that they had to do that, they also had to build a supporting cast around them that was both better than what had been there before with, you know, the likes of Byron Ritchie and Mark Edward Schwinnard and any number of regrettable names that I could list and both better and cheaper, both better and more affordable at the same time. It's a really, really difficult trick to pull off and it's so close to what the Canucks like it matches so well with what the Canucks have to pull off right now especially with Pedersen and Hughes becoming you know way more expensive over the next 12 to 14 months it's going to be a fascinating thing to watch them try and pull off 
to this point, I don't know that they've made the types of moves that would give you a ton of confidence that they're going to be able to do it. Well, this much I know that uh, I will remember Tyler Toffoli's time as a Canuck far more fondly than Derek Roy's. Right. Uh, that was a trade that did not work uh, at the deadline for the Canucks when they were trying to squeeze the last little bit out of uh, the Sedin era at the you know the tail end of its peak. So, yeah. hey, we've covered a lot of covered a ton of ground on this show. Uh, lots going on, obviously. A lot of moving parts with this hockey club. <laughs> and we'll continue to monitor the situation. We're going to get to hear from Nate Schmidt for the first time as a Canuck. Uh, we'll probably hear from Jim Benning again and maybe get a better sense of sort of what the plan was ultimately and where it goes from here because he's still, as we've touched on throughout the pod, uh, there are a lot of uh, challenges ahead for the salary cap, you know, in the short term, long term as well. So uh, we'll see what the week brings. Uh, just getting started here on this week out of the long weekend, but uh, uh, we'll reconvene a little later on and uh, figure out uh, where the Canucks are if there are more moves to break down. Uh, we'll be all over it here on the VanCast. Uh, look, this time last week, we thought Oliver Ekman Larson may be coming uh, this way. Didn't happen. But Bill Armstrong, the new general manager of the Arizona Coyotes, spends the full 60 with Craig Custance this week at the Athletics. So there's probably more on OEL in there. And we always remind you at the end of each episode here, check out our comment section for every podcast episode of the Athletic app. Rate and subscribe. The VanCast on Apple. We love the feedback. Love to hear from you. And if you're not a subscriber to The Athletic, subscribe now and save. Go to theathletic.com slash vancast. You can receive an all-access subscription for just $1.25 Canadian a month. So great value there. And if you're not a subscriber already, you are missing out. Drancer, I'm glad you made it back from the wilderness in one piece. Thanks, Refreshed, sir. recharged, and uh, a very meaty episode on the yeah. uh, VanCast here today. So uh, good stuff, and uh, we'll catch up later in the week. Yeah, sounds good, man. And I'm glad to know that you're the only person... Who remembers Derek Roy's playoffs? <laughs> I thought the most forgettable playoff performance of all time in Canucks history. Uh, so to be reminded of it truly, uh, <laughs> truly has made my day. But but good fun, and uh, look forward to seeing what comes next because what comes next should be fascinating and without question will be very high stakes. A forgettable playoff performance, but a memorable. Vancast out of the Thanksgiving long weekend. For Drancer, it's J Pat as always. Thanks so much for listening to the Vancast here at the Athletic and the Athletic.com. <laughs>